Today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians. We're continuing our series in 1 Corinthians. I want to start out, though, with our memory verse of the month. So our memory verse of the month is 1 Corinthians 1, 8. 1 Corinthians 1, 8. Will you say this with me? 1 Corinthians 1, 8. 18, thank you. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. All right. To us who are perishing, or sorry, to those who are perishing, it's foolishness. To those who are perishing, the message of the cross is foolishness. But that's not what the message is to us. To us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We've been in 1 Corinthians here for a little bit, and we're going to continue to be in 1 Corinthians for a little bit. And we've been really comparing the wisdom of the world with the wisdom of God. And where we're going to go today, as we sort of engage in a transitional passage, Paul moves from 1 Corinthians, where he's talking a lot about wisdom, into 1 Corinthians, where he's talking about specific problems. And there's really two sections of this which are transition. We'll do one of them today. Today, the message that I want you to hear is the call to Christ is a call to be all in. It's not a call to hesitation. It's a call to be all in for Christ. We have a a society where we tend to hedge our bets. And there are situations where hedging your bets or not being all in are bound for trouble. When I went to uh, undergrad, I went to school in downtown Denver, and we lived, Emily and I lived out in a small town. By small, I mean a thousand people, pretty small town. And I would commute in every day into downtown Denver. And I got good at driving in city traffic because I had 8 o'clock a.m. courses, so I was driving right in rush hour. One of the keys to driving in a big city is knowing how to merge with traffic. And I have ridden with people who don't know how to merge with traffic. They come down the on-ramp, they look, they see the traffic, and they put on the brakes, and they try to merge at 10 miles an hour. It doesn't work. If you're merging on an interstate, you have to be all in. Here's another example. Playing a wind instrument. Have you ever heard somebody who's not quite sure if they're ready to come in or not in a band concert? And so they blow kind of tentatively, and the reed just... If you're not all in, you're going to fail. Here's another example some of you can relate to. Have you ever taken somebody out shooting a gun for the first time? And they hold it out and they sort of close their eye, turn away from it, and they pull the trigger and you're lucky if the gun doesn't wind up in the dirt? Or catching a football. This is one of the ones I really enjoy watching. Somebody who's scared of the football, and you throw a nice long shot at them, and they close their eyes at the last second before the football hits their hands, and the football misses their hands and usually hits them in the face. (laughs) There are times in life where hedging your bets, not being all in, leads to disaster. There are times to just go for it, to go all in, to take the plunge, and that's what the Apostle Paul is really talking about here in 1 Corinthians. The wisdom of the world is a huge temptation. 
We are tempted to hedge our bets by embracing little bits of the wisdom of the world. And Paul says, no, give it up for Christ. We have a tendency to hedge our bets. But when it comes to the call of Christ, we need to be all in. And to do that, there's two temptations that we need to deal with. The temptation to rely on human wisdom and the temptation to use our personal judgments instead of Christ's. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 18. Paul writes, Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. The first thing that the Apostle Paul emphasizes here is that there is a temptation. The temptation to rely on human wisdom is a very real temptation. Remember, up to this point, Paul has compared human wisdom with the gospel. Human wisdom with God's saving wisdom of sending Jesus Christ as the perfect man to die on the cross. God himself die on the cross be raised again three days later that all who might believe in Jesus could have eternal life. That's the wisdom of God and to the world it's foolishness. What do you mean someone died so that we can have eternal life? What do you mean somebody died on the cross so that we could have eternal life? What do you mean somebody lived a perfect life? That's impossible. What do you mean God became man? That doesn't make sense. It's foolishness to the world. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. And so our only solution is to recognize that we have a temptation to rely on human wisdom and we must reject it. As I was reading this, a thought was going through my head. There is a philosophical position, a philosophy out there called humanism. Webster defines humanism to be a doctrine or attitude or way of life centered on human interests or values. A focus on the human. This is the idea that humans can do anything we set our minds to. Humans can accomplish everything. If we just would embrace our humanity, we would solve all the world's problems. And this belief permeates our culture. If you don't believe me, go look at what movies are going to be playing in the movie theater in the next six months. Humanism permeates our culture. It is a temptation that we are all tempted to, and probably every one of us at some point or another has been influenced by it, and we say something that is purely humanism. We say, oh, he's a really good guy. No, we're totally depraved. There's none righteous, no, not one. Or we say something like, you can do it if you just set your mind to it. No. If God lets you, if God empowers you, yes. Humanism permeates our culture. And so the first temptation that I see in verses 18 through 20 is a temptation 
to rely upon one's own wisdom. Paul begins verse 18 with an imperative command. Don't deceive yourselves. This is abrupt and strong language. Have you ever told someone that they're lying to themselves? Hopefully that's not something you say often because that's pretty harsh. There are cases where people do that though. You're deceiving yourself, Paul says. Don't deceive yourselves. If you think you're wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools. Give it up. The phrase by the standards of this age reminds us why we should care about this so much. Because wisdom, worldly wisdom, has an expiration date. It's only valid in this age. Paul's concern is not this age, but the age to come, the age of the kingdom. Paul's already told the Corinthians that the wisdom of God appears foolish to the world, but in verse 18, he does take it a step further. He tells the Corinthians that the wisdom of the world is foolish to God. It is foolish. How does Paul prove this? Well, he quotes Job. He quotes Job, and he says he catches the wise in their craftiness. He quotes Psalms and says, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. The Lord knows the wisdom of the world, and he is telling us. He did in the Old Testament. He does here in Paul's writing. He's telling us it's foolishness. God is telling us, don't focus on worldly wisdom. It's not going to get you anywhere in the long run. The second temptation that Paul brings up is in verses 22 and 23. And that is a temptation to rely on the wisdom of a leader. We are all tempted to do this. We all know people or have heard of people or have read people that we think of as being very wise individuals. And Paul says, don't rely on the wisdom of any man. Don't say, oh, I belong to the teachings of so-and-so. I follow the teachings of so-and-so. No, we follow the Bible. Don't rely on the wisdom of a leader. To back this up, the Apostle Paul gives what I think is a really cool argument. Starting in verse 22, he says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, these are three big-time leaders in the church at this time. The Apostle Paul, the individual who planted churches all across the Roman Empire. Apollos, an eloquent orator who could stand toe-to-toe with the greatest speakers of the age. Or Cephas, that's Peter. Not eloquent, not philosophical, but man, that guy was all in and you could get behind him. Paul says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, they all belong to you, church. You don't belong to them. They are not the ones that rule you. Rather, they were given to you by God. In fact, Paul really identifies the only things that tend to restrict humans 
We can go into space, but we're still under the influence of the world's gravity. You can talk to Harrison about that if you want. He's our physicist. Life or death, those are pretty big human limitations, right? You're either alive or you're dead, okay? What about the present or the future? Time, that's, all of us would like more time. Paul says in his writing, whether it's your human leaders, Paul or Apollos or Cephas, whether it's your physical limitations, the world that you're in, whether it's your life or your death, whether it's your present or your future, through Christ, who is of God, those are no longer concerns of yours. Don't worry about it. The temptation we have is to rely on the wisdom of a leader. And Paul says, don't fall for it. You don't have to worry about it. The leaders are given to you for your edification. So then Paul, actually in verse 21, gives the solution. The solution to these two temptations, remember the temptation is to rely on your own wisdom and the temptation is to rely on the wisdom of a leader. In verse 21, Paul gives the solution, go cold turkey. Look at what he says in verse 21. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. Knock it off. Stop it. No one should boast in man. Whether that's your wisdom or that's the wisdom of another man, stop it. No more boasting in men. So let me give you an action step. Take a second and honestly consider your reliance on human wisdom. Be honest with yourself. Remember how Paul starts this off. Don't deceive yourselves. Do you rely on human wisdom over God's wisdom? How much do you rely on human wisdom over God's wisdom? Gordon Fee, in his discussion of this passage, notes, he says, we have a natural tendency to denominationalism. And we must be discerning, but it doesn't mean that we should reject everything from outside our tribe. To be of Christ is to be free from the tyrannies of one's own narrowness, free to learn even from those with whom we may disagree. If we truly embrace God's wisdom and not man's wisdom, then we can evaluate what we are told. We might disagree with it. We might agree with it. We can look at it and we can compare it to God's wisdom and decide no more boasting in mere men. Honestly consider your reliance on human wisdom. Paul goes on, though, with another temptation or category of temptation in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4. So read with me in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Paul says, This is then how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I carry very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear. But that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. 
the first temptation we had was a temptation to rely on human wisdom. The second temptation that I see is a temptation to use our own judgment. The temptation to use our own judgment is a very real temptation. We like to use our judgments. So in verses 1 through 3, Paul says, Paul identifies a temptation. We're tempted to use our own judgment when evaluating another individual. Do you do this? Do you look at people and do you evaluate them by some standard that you have made up? I do. I'll admit it. We have a temptation to do that. It is tempting to evaluate people by the standards of our culture, of who we are. We tend to love somebody or hate them. We have a tendency to judge people by how they make us feel, especially our leaders. I learned this when I was teaching at the university. If I wanted good teaching evaluations, I'll tell you the trick. There was one trick, which was to give everybody A's. I didn't do that. (laughs) The other trick was to make everybody feel good at the end of the day. Like, you could have a really bad test, but if you made everyone walk out feeling good, they'd leave you a good evaluation. We tend to judge people by how they make us feel. We tend to ask people, what's in it for me? What are you going to do for me? Paul says that's not how you judge people. That's not how you judge people. First of all, in order to judge a leader, Paul says you need to understand what a leader actually is. In God's model, what is somebody who's leading? Paul says you ought, you ought This, then, is how you ought to regard us. That makes it sound, at least in my head, like, oh, this is a suggestion. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying it is required. You are required to judge us, how? As servants of Christ and those entrusted with the mysteries of God. There's actually a play on words going on here in the Greek. Um or a play on culture. The first thing that Paul says is judge us as servants of Christ. A servant was an individual who was subordinate, who helped out the master in a very subordinate role. Servant is a good translation of that. We understand that. It's somebody who who literally served the master. Entrusted with the mysteries of Christ is similar to a servant, but a little bit different. They would be your household manager. So what you would have, if you were a wealthy individual, is you would have your servants, and then you would have your household manager because you need someone to manage all your servants. Paul says, view us as both servant of Christ and household manager. What are we in charge of managing? The words of Christ. And so then how do you evaluate somebody who is a servant and a household manager. You don't evaluate them based on what they do. You evaluate them based on if they're faithful. It's a really minor difference. Someone who's faithful will do things for the master. 
but you can have people who work for you that aren't faithful to you, right? And it doesn't go well in the end. The way that Paul says to evaluate is to look at faithfulness. So Paul makes an argument here. We are tempted to use our own judgment when judging individuals, and Paul says, no, it's not about eloquence. It's not about charisma. It's not about education. It's not about talent. It's not about initiative. It's not about ideas. It's not about success. It's not even about the number of baptisms or the number of salvations. It's about faithfulness. That's what matters to God. Some of the best pastors in the United States are pastoring small churches with very few people in it in remote areas of our country, but they are faithful, and that's what matters to Christ. Judgment is based on faithfulness, and Paul goes on to say, and by the way, the only person who can evaluate faithfulness is God. And that's where he goes next, because we have a second temptation. And that is to use our own judgment when evaluating ourselves. When looking at ourselves, we tend to use our own judgments on ourselves. This can be both negative and positive, right? Some people look at themselves, and they know themselves, and they're honest with themselves, and they come up with a really bad judgment on themselves. Other people look at themselves, and they know themselves, and they ignore it, and they come up with a really good judgment on themselves. Paul, in verse 4, says, my conscience is clear. What Paul is saying is, I can't think of anything that I'm doing wrong right now, but that doesn't mean that I'm clear. Only God can judge me. Only God can evaluate whether or not I'm being faithful. Jeremiah 17.9 tells us that the heart The heart, our heart, is deceitful above all things and beyond care. Who can understand it? If we go with our heart, if we follow our heart, it will deceive us. Only God can give us the evaluation. So what's the solution in verse 5? Throw yourself at the mercy of God. Submit completely to God. The Apostle Paul says, therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Throw yourself at the mercy of God. Let him be the one who evaluates you. So my action step is another self-honesty action step. Ask yourself, are you using your own judgments when evaluating yourself? Or are you focusing on faithfulness to God? I will be faithful to God and let everything else work out because faithfulness is the thing that God is looking for from me. That's what God wants from you is faithfulness. If you're being honest with yourself, I think you'll find that you're using your own wisdom at times, human wisdom, and you're using your own judgments at times, human judgments. If you're honest with yourself, I think you'll find that because none of us have arrived. So how do we grow? What steps do we take? 
my answer to the now what question? Scripture, prayer, and the Holy Spirit. Scripture, prayer, and the Holy Spirit. Have you ever taken a chemistry class, whether like in high school or college? It's fun. Or in your backyard. We won't go into those details. Um, in a chemistry class, you have ingredients, you have a container, and you have a catalyst. Ingredients you put into the container, and the catalyst allows the chemical reaction to take place. Well, I want to propose a chemistry lab for you all. The ingredients are scripture. A healthy dose of scripture. But we must be careful with scripture that we don't simply soak and sour. But that we use it and apply it. And so I have a container that I want to propose to you. The container is prayer. Take your ingredients of scripture, mix it in the container of prayer, you might say, what in the world are you talking about now? Have you ever taken your Bible into your time of prayer and prayed God's words back to him? Before you call me crazy, there's Old Testament precedent for this. In Nehemiah chapter 6, or sorry, not in 6, chapter 9, Nehemiah seems to do this. There's absolutely Acts, New Testament precedent for this. In Acts 4, verses 24 through 30, Acts 4, verses 24 through 30, you can look at that later this afternoon. The apostles take Old Testament scripture and they pray it back to God in their prayer. So I propose to you that part of meditating on scripture, like we should do, Joshua 1, 8, is to take your Bible to your time of prayer. Read it with God. But don't forget the catalyst. If you take a bunch of ingredients, dry ingredients or even some fluid ingredients, and you throw them in a beaker and then you set it on the counter, absolutely nothing may happen. You need something that gets the reaction going. A lot of times that's heat. Sometimes that's some sort of a fluid. You need a catalyst. The catalyst I propose to you is the Holy Spirit. Take a look again we studied this a few weeks ago at 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 16. I'm not going to read it all, but instead what I want to emphasize to you is that the Holy Spirit in 2 Corinthians 2 is the one who reveals God's word to us, who reveals the knowledge of God, an understanding of who God is. The Holy Spirit is the one who reveals wisdom. James 1, 22 through 25. I'm going to read this to you. It says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. The solution 
to our temptation to go to human wisdom, to our temptation to go to human judgments, is to turn instead to Scripture. In times of prayer, asking the Holy Spirit to reveal to us so that when we look in the Bible, we are not looking as in a mirror where we turn away and say, oh well, my hair's a mess, moving on. No. We say, I got to fix that. Before I get out of this house, that is not an acceptable look. That's what it looks like to move beyond human wisdom that tells us humanism. You're good. You can accomplish anything. Move beyond human judgments that says, look at this person's charisma. No, look at their faithfulness. To move to God's word. So my action step is get to work. Praying, using scripture, and inviting the Holy Spirit to work. In 1 Corinthians 2.2, the Apostle Paul writes, I am resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What do you need to throw out? Human wisdom, human judgments, and replace it with scripture, prayer, and the Holy Spirit so that you might be resolved to know nothing more than Christ crucified. Today, we're going to continue our discipleship theme where we've been talking about ways in which you can connect and grow in discipleship. And one of the individuals who's been really pushing me in terms of prayer is JL. And so I'm going to invite JL up to talk about some of the discipleship opportunities that he has that we can listen to. And he's going to need a mic. Good morning. I'm uh, JL Schmidt. You folks probably all know who you are. <laughs> I want to talk to you. Well, there's a couple. I want to talk to you about what could arguably be the oldest small group at Southview. The Thursday morning men's group started in, in earnest in 2014. However, we have carbon dated some artifacts back to 2002. Uh, we met on Tuesday nights we met on Thursday mornings for prayer at 6, and uh, not everybody in the present group was there. There were the group we called the slackers who didn't meet till 10, um, but we ultimately all gave in, and we meet at 10 on Thursday mornings at New Day, which is a delightful coffee smoothie place. We do, um, there's nine of us, we do book studies. Uh, we've done Chuck Swindoll and David Jeremiah and, and uh, the, whole, the whole wide gap. But the one thing we always consistently do when we are done with the study, we pray. We searched uh, for a long time for a name. The folks at New Day said, 
what should we call you? They reserve a table for us. They reserve the outdoor gazebo for us when it's nice. So we settled on, you know, grumpy old men or something like that. One day, a little over a year ago, we were concluding our meeting, and a woman came up to us and said, you're the guys that pray, aren't you? And we said, yes. And she gave us several prayer requests. This doesn't always happen, but it happens a lot. And so um, while we haven't formally adopted that name, I simply want to tell you to think of us as the guys that pray. So to that end, join me in a brief prayer, please. Father God, we, we lift up the beauty of small groups to you. Connection. But Lord, we know that unless we are connected to you first, we can't connect with those around us. So please, Lord, continue to bless our discipleship in Jesus' precious name. Amen. <clears throat>